Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Welcome to the podcast. As a friendly reminder, if you would please follow and rate the show, it helps me convince extremely busy doctors such as the one I have on today to take their time and expertise to share with you. So I appreciate if everyone would do that. Today, we are going to be talking all about the heart with Dr. Michael Twyman. Dr. Twyman is a board-certified cardiologist who completed his cardiovascular training at St. Louis University. Heart attack prevention is Dr. Twyman's passion, and he utilizes the best of conventional medicine, functional medicine, and biohacking to get to the root cause of a patient's cardiovascular issues. I'm pumped to talk about this today, so thank you for being on the show, Dr. Twyman. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so when we started to work on these topics, I realized that there could literally be a million episodes that we do on heart health. So we have a lot to cover, and I'm super excited about this. And I think we should just start with like the big guy, heart attacks. I want to know what physically occurs in someone when they have a heart attack. Great question. It's unfortunately still the number one thing that takes out both men and women, and it happens fairly acutely. Half the time people have heart attacks, they had no symptoms before the heart attack occurred. And you have approximately 60,000 miles of blood vessels. And this process tends to take many years to develop. So it's not so much that your arteries are like a sewer pipe and they fill full of sludge, and then when they're blocked, that's a heart attack. It's actually that you have a plaque growing in the wall of the artery. It's basically like a pimple. And if that pimple ruptures, the blood clots around that ruptured plaque. Now no oxygen nutrients go past the obstruction and the heart muscle starts to die. So that's how most heart attacks occur. So I think why people are so afraid of heart attacks is because they feel like they could be like working out in the yard and boom, heart attack, they're gone. But like you just said, the reality is these things don't really happen overnight. It's a progressive disease and you're passionate about heart attack prevention. So let's talk about what are people going to do to prevent a heart attack? Sure. And the classic story is that you know most of the time you don't go see a cardiologist unless you're already having the symptoms. You know, you're having chest pain when you're exercising, you're short of breath, or you can't exercise the way you used to think that you used to be able to, you know, think you're slowing down. You're like, maybe she'll get checked out. So they'll do a traditional stress test or maybe even a chemical stress test if you can't exercise enough, and they'll tell you it's abnormal or not abnormal. And if it's abnormal, they'll take you to the cath lab and look for these blockages. But that's a really late-stage finding. By the time you fail a stress test, you probably have 70% or more blockage in one of your three major coronary arteries that provide the nutrients to the heart muscle. So you really want to look way, way upstream. You want to be looking at the endothelial health, which I know we'll get into. You want to be looking at the inflammation, the lipoproteins. You want to look at all the things that could be damaging the arteries. So you're recommending even young, healthy people, let's say a 40-year-old, start to take early steps and proactive testing so they can get some baseline numbers. Yeah, proactive, not reactive. 40 is actually probably the, the minimal cutoff. I mean, ideally, probably somebody who's 18 years old should probably have an initial panel looking at their ApoB particles. That's kind of the main cholesterol number you want to look at. If you have really high numbers, you may have familial hyperlipidemia syndrome, which one in 500 people have. And then also having LPLA assessed, which up to 20% of the population has. LPLA is very much like LDL, 
but it's more likely to damage the arteries and it's genetically inherited. So you want to know early in your life, do you have these things and you can address them early because plaque really does start in your teens and twenties, but most time people don't have their first event till they're 40, 50, 60 years old. Okay. So say I show up in your office, what test are you going to run on me? So my office is set up to basically look at the root causes of people's cardiovascular concerns. So we first start with endothelial health. The endothelium is the inner lining of your arteries. It's one cell thick. If you took out all your endothelium in your arteries, it'd be approximately the surface area of six tennis courts. It's one of your largest secretory organs. And one of the major things that it releases is something called nitric oxide. And I know you've had Dr. Nathan Bryan on your show before, who's an expert and has developed many products to help boost nitric oxide. But nitric oxide, from a cardiovascular standpoint, helps the arteries dilate, so that keeps blood pressure down. But nitric oxide also kind of acts like nonstick surface. So when you have high nitric oxide levels, the red blood cells, the white blood cells, the lipoproteins, which are carrying your cholesterol, they just zip on through your arteries and don't stick to the artery. If you have low nitric oxide, things start sticking to your arteries. So you can assess that by salivary nitric oxide test strips. It kind of looks like litmus paper. Is it white or is it bright red and making good nitric oxide? We have a device called the Max Pulse that looks at arterial elasticity. So instead of measuring the oxygen in your finger, we're using a clip on your finger that's looking at the arteries expanding and contracting. Healthy arteries should be like an accordion. Sick arteries are like a lead pipe. We also have a device called the Endopat, which will give you a percentage of how much arteries will dilate with a vessel stressor. Ideally, arteries should triple or quadruple in size when there's a stressor to them. So that's just starting with endothelial health. Then we move on to, do you have inflammation in the arteries? And that's usually a carotid ultrasound looking at something called the intimal medial thickness. You know, your artery should be fairly thin. If it's thick, that means there's inflammation in the artery wall. And it's very likely if you don't shut down that inflammation, plaque will start building up. So that's just the starting point for most people. And then based off their history and other things, we decide what other testing is appropriate. So are you doing all these in your office or do you have to sometimes outsource some of this? The only thing we currently outsource is a CT scan. And there's a couple of different CT versions that we recommend. One is called the CT coronary calcium score, which a few more places have that. And then there's another one called the uh, Clearly CCTA, which is a coronary angiogram. But there's only one facility in St. Louis currently offering that test. Okay. And I'm assuming this is a cash pay because insurance companies aren't exactly proactive. Yeah, the insurance company's there when you have the heart attack and they want to pay for the you know, the stent or the bypass surgery, but they're not really there for you. So you almost have to think this is more like fire insurance. You know, you want to have insurance when bad things happen, but that's not how medical insurance really is squared away. So you want to invest in your own health and figure out what's going on with yourself before you have the problem. So let's go back to the nitric oxide. Are you supplementing a lot of your patients with nitric oxide? Often. Yeah, a lot of people are deficient. Okay. Are you using that Neo 40 or the Berkeley Health, like the lozenges or the chewables? Both of those also use NOTU. There's also a product from a company called Calroy called Vasculinox, which may last a little bit longer than some of those, but I use all four of them essentially. And it's based off of the non-invasive testing. And then there's also different blood testing kind of point you towards which one might be better for those people. Okay. Let's talk about the blood test and cholesterol testing that you're doing and the ApoB, because I feel like whenever you're going to your primary care doctor and they're looking at your cholesterol, you're just seeing your LDL and your HDL. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. And that's the challenge is that if you only have a traditional lipid panel, you have half the picture, maybe. And it's much more complicated than good cholesterol, bad cholesterol. The myth is there's no such thing. There's just cholesterol, but there's different things that ferry the cholesterol through your system. So in my office and for people watching the video, you know, I always show people a tennis ball. Your liver makes these things. They're called lipoproteins, a lipid protein carrier. You think of them as like a cargo ship. 
So the cholesterol, which is waxy, it will not float in your liquid blood, kind of like oil and vinegar. The cholesterol goes inside the lipoprotein, like a cargo ship. The triglycerides, which are energy, go inside and a few other things. The liver pumps them out and then sends them through the blood vessels to go off to your muscles. On the outside of the lipoprotein, on the outside of this tennis ball, is this white stripe. That white stripe is essentially the ApoB or the apolipoprotein B. ApoB is a protein that holds the thing into a sphere and also acts as a ligand. Basically, it's a key so that when it's floating through the blood vessels, different receptors will then bind to it and pull it out of circulation. So you really want to know what your LDL particle count is, the total number. The size is important, but the number is more important. Or if you only have access to it, an ApoB. Those are the best lipid metrics that you want to be assessing. And those are found on advanced lipid profile testing with many different companies. Yeah, and I don't think they're that expensive. I think you can get that ran for under $50. So I guess that's why I'm confused. How is a patient getting prescribed a statin when these other things aren't being looked at? Right. And stands are tools. Some people, the tool works good for, and other people, maybe it's a little bit of a overprescribe. So you really need to look at the ApoB to really know what the risk is, because it's always an ApoB particle that basically docks to the intima, or I should say the endothelium, and it's getting stuck in the artery wall and starts dropping its cargo off. So you have to know how many of these particles are. It's not as important to know how much cholesterol there is, but there's always going to be cholesterol on the plaque, but you need to know the cargo ships, essentially. So there are going to be people listening that are on a statin that have not had this testing done. How do you handle that in your clinic? What do you say to them? Well, it sort of depends on you know, why they got started on the statin in the first place, because before these advanced testing was done, stands have been around. So it may not be wrong to be on a statin, but the people who benefit the most are people who already had events. They already have a stent. They already have bypass surgery. They've had a stroke. They've had a heart attack. Stands in those instances are really reducing those people having secondary events. The people we got to be a little more careful are the people who are primary prevention. They've never had an event and they just had, quote, high cholesterol and somebody gave them a prescription for a medicine that, that quote, lowered it. Well, do you know why you want it to lower it? You know, is it a problem that the liver's making too many? Is it an issue with the LDL receptor can't clear them? Is it an issue with the intestines hyperabsorbing the fats and sterols back through the gut lining? You have to kind of look a little bit deeper. Why is their cholesterol, quote, abnormal? And then the better question is, what's going on with the arteries? Test your arteries. If your arteries are chock full of plaque, even though you have no symptoms, yes, you probably should be on some type of lipid-lowering therapy. But if your arteries are pristine, you have healthy nitric oxide levels, just because you have, quote, high cholesterol, do you have to treat? Possibly not. You may do more lifestyle interventions in that instance. So how did we get to this place where there's, quote, high cholesterol, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, and then there's actually low cholesterol, which you don't hear many people talk about except for doctors like yourself or even hormone doctors because cholesterol does sit at the top of the hormone cascade. So there are repercussions to having low cholesterol. How do we arrive there? I think in the effort to try to make things simplistic, you know, we're having a you know, pretty high-level conversation about lipoproteins. You, know, you, know, you had to be kind of nerdy to really dig into this stuff. And so I think they just wanted to make it simple. Like, here's your lab. The numbers are red. It's high. We think you can lower it with blank. And some people, that works for them. But for the intellectually curious, like, why is it high? Well, then that opens up the Pandora's box of like, okay, there's a lot more options than just one treatment option. But to your point about hormones, yes, your hormones are made by your cholesterol. You know, cholesterol is not the boogeyman. It wasn't put into you to give you a heart attack. 
outside of your cell membranes is chock full of cholesterol. You make your bile acids with it. But one thing that's very interesting is that the majority of the organs, they make all their own supply of cholesterol because it's such a vital nutrient. They're not waiting around for a lipoprotein from the liver to give them cholesterol. They're mostly waiting for triglycerides, which are energy, because not all cells, most cells cannot make their own forms of energy. And the times of real significant stress, the adrenals and the gonads may ask for more cholesterol from the liver and the lipoproteins, but it's not LDL, it's the HDL side of the story. So if you have low HDL particles and low testosterone, that is more of a problem. It's not lowering the LDL too low, causing you to not have testosterone. Okay. So your use of statins, when are you using them? Are you using them long-term? Are you using them short-term? Or if you've determined that somebody's cholesterol is a potential issue, kind of where are you starting there? Always start with the arteries first. You know, how much plaque is in the carotid artery? How much plaque is in the coronary artery? The task called the CT coronary calcium score sometimes is the tiebreaker. If your score is over 400, you should highly consider medications like statins. It doesn't always have to be a statin. You know, you can use a PCSK9 inhibitor, azetamide, fibrates. There's multiple different options. It's not one thing, you know, that works. But that's how I can decide what is the treatment is, you know, how much plaque is in the arteries and then do the lipoprotein testing and then look at the other ancillary things that you're going to look at the labs. There's reasons why stands may not work for somebody. You know, they have vitamin D deficiency. They're very low on CoQ10. They're hypothyroid. They have an APOE4 gene. And if you do enough genetics, you can look at something called SLCL1B1. If you have an abnormal copy of that, it's three to four times more increased risk. You're going to get muscle symptoms on stands. Not all of them. So maybe you would have to use lower dose or intermittent dose, but it's very personalized to that individual who's sitting in front of me. What about a daily aspirin? You hear uh, a lot of people say, oh, I'm, I'm on a daily aspirin to prevent heart attack. Correct. So it's more in the same instance, you know, the secondary prevention, it's more hardcore data that reduces further events. But primary prevention, there's always a risk of bleeding with aspirin. So you got to outweigh that risk. So somebody's, you know, an 18 year old female, aspirin is probably the wrong choice for them. It's a 65 year old woman with a carotid brewery. She's never had a stroke or a heart attack yet. Well, pretty high risk. She's going to have a stroke. So aspirin in that instance is more beneficial. But aspirin, the way it works is it prevents the platelets from sticking together. So back to the original story, like how's a heart attack occur? If one of these little plaques ruptures on your artery wall and the blood clots, a lot of that platelets are sticking together. The aspirin prevents those things from sticking and so that the blood still stays a little bit more like red wine, not so much like ketchup. Okay. So you mentioned vitamin D. I want you to elaborate a little bit on the role vitamin D plays and then also loop in vitamin K2 and how that works in conjunction. So those two things you just mentioned, vitamin D and vitamin K2, are very important for calcium metabolism. So you need calcium to stay in your bones and teeth. You don't necessarily want calcium to be building up for kidney stones or building up in the artery walls. So vitamin D is a hormone. It's not a pill. It's something that your body makes when UVB rays hit the skin. And we're both in St. Louis. Just a week or so ago, the vitamin D window opened back up. So there's about two months in St. Louis where you can go outside with no clothes on and you're not making vitamin D because the sun doesn't get high enough in the horizon for the UVB rays to get through the atmosphere. Why do we live here? I don't know. <laughs> 
tradition, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, that's why in November I go down to you know Mexico and do a sun run for a few days and soak up a lot of vitamin D and bring it back and last you about six weeks. So kind of biohacked it for the past few years. But vitamin D is an extremely important hormone, has you know, hundreds of functions in the body. But if you're low in it, there's all-cause mortality. You're more likely to die because of low vitamin D levels. It's not because the vitamin D's levels are low. It just means that your immune system doesn't work well. You're going to have all sorts of cardiovascular issues. And just popping a pill is always what I want to kind of kind of harp on people is like, that's not the answer because there's hundreds of other compounds that your skin makes when the sun hits it. The vitamin D taking a pill is not the same form. You still need sunlight to convert it into sulfate of cholesterol, into the vitamin D. You need your liver to activate it. You need your kidney to fully activate it. So you can take a pill, but is that the same as making on your skin? Absolutely not. Okay. So let's talk about some of those biohacks. For the people that can see you, you're wearing a special pair of glasses right now. You just talked about biohacking and headed down to Mexico. Talk about the importance of light and your overall health. That's where I start. You know, everybody comes in and they want to talk about nutrition first or exercise. And I tell them it's important, but those are like number five and six things we're going to get to. I want you to talk about your light hygiene. I want to talk about your sleep. I want to talk about your stress, you know, how you mitigate it because everybody has stress, but not everybody deals with it well. Then we hit nutrition and exercise. But the glasses I'm wearing, they filter out certain blue frequencies of light. So the sky is blue for a reason. So when you'd go outside in the morning time, that light would hit the back of your eye. There's a receptor called melanopsin. It would tell you it's daytime. You would make all sorts of hormones that cortisol, dopamine, serotonin, all your feel-good hormones are made in the morning time. And then as the sun changes throughout the day, the sky looks different to your eye and your brain knows it's noontime versus when the sun's about to set. When the sun sets, the blue light detected in the back of the eye realizes that and says it must be nighttime. So cortisol will start to drop and melatonin will start to rise. But ever since they invented the light bulb in the late 1800s, we've kind of messed up this natural rhythm. So you would have only had fire at nighttime before. Now with our devices, especially these really intense LED screens, your brain basically gets tricked into thinking it's always noontime. And so you're always alert. And you wonder why you can't easily fall asleep or stay asleep. It's your technology ruining your circadian mechanism. And so these glasses just help your brain know what time of day it is, essentially. So what's your personal routine? You wake up prior to sunrise and then you physically go outside in St. Louis, even in the winter, I guess, except for the two months when you're not converting vitamin D or do you still go outside? I still go outside. I just don't make vitamin D those days. My hygiene is a little bit different than other people's because my house is all decked out where I have a lot of different gadgets where you know I don't have intense blue light in my house for the most part. So I have a lot of different red light panels and red light bulbs and stuff. So I'm usually up by five every single morning, every single day. Your body craves consistency. So Monday through Friday, same wake-up time. Saturday, Sunday, same wake-up time. You don't want to socially jet lag yourself. That's what happens if you sleep in for two, three hours on Saturday, Sunday, and then try to go back to work on Monday at your usual time. But I'm up by five. I put on my glasses. Usually go meditate for a while. Start drinking a coffee or two. Go out walking. Right now, St. Louis, sunrise is about 7.15 in the morning here in January 2023. Outside for that point. Then go inside, eat breakfast, come into work. Indoor sunglasses. Sun up to sundown. When I'm indoors, I wear these blue blockers, especially when I'm in front of the technology. My office is pretty circadian friendly, so sometimes I'm sitting down with the patients I don't necessarily have it on because my office is all tricked out for that. But post-sunset, the glasses are on. Occasionally, I'll switch over to the darker tinted ones, the red ones that block all blue light. But my sleep's so good right now, I don't necessarily need to do that, and it'll knock me unconscious within about half an hour if I put those ones on. So you're recommending to all your patients, first thing in the morning, you need to be 
in the sun, whether it's you're driving to work and just roll down your windows and kind of get the sun through your car. Because how much sun actually gets through, like, you can see the sun shining on my face right here through the through my windows. But how much sun am I actually receiving there? That's a great point is that it does have to be full spectrum sunlight. So even though you know we're both kind of in a lot of natural light right now, the glass that the light is getting filtered through will basically block about 40% of the red and the infrared spectrums of light. That's basically trying to keep the heat on the outside of the building. So more of the high intensity blue light, green spectrum is coming through. So it's not as bad sitting behind glass as it is staring at a computer screen, but it's not the same as what your body would be sensing outside. So you mentioned a good point. If you're driving your car, you just have to crack your window just a little bit. All those wavelengths of light come flooding on into your car then. And you mentioned your office is tricked out. Okay, well, what if we want to trick ours out? What are you hiding behind you that is helping you? So, I mean, I have different red light bulbs in my office. I have just a corner office, so it's just all full spectrum light that comes through the glass. I have LEDs overhead, but they're never on. So I just try to use the natural lighting that I have access to. And then there's different things, you know, I know if I get into talking about photobiomodulation. So I have those panels in my office and sometimes I use those as just kind of task lighting as well. So maybe talk about the red light use with the blue light, like why it's important kind of to balance those two things out. Sure, because I mean, your computer screens, your phones, tablets, there's about four to five times more intense blue light coming off those than red light. So now I'm not uh, so hardcore where I have a spectrometer and I'm trying to make it exactly balanced, but I will just add red light back into the environment. So I have different red light bulbs on. I got my PBM panel on behind me that also has infrared. So it's more like natural sunlight inside. It's never perfect, but it's better than most people set up. Okay. And so how does doing this help your heart health? Because every organ has a circadian clock. Your heart wants to know when's the optimal time to you know be exercising. Trick question. It's supposed to be in the afternoon. Your heart has a circadian rhythm on a blood pressure. So every organ wants to know, is it time to regenerate? You know, your heart is beating whatever, 60 to 100 beats a minute, every minute for your entire life. It never takes a full on break, but it has to try to regenerate and repair itself as best as it can. Your mitochondria, the organelles in your cells that make energy for you, there's about 3,000 of them per heart cell. Your heart and brain are the two most energy dense organs for the most part. The trick question is that the ovaries have the most mitochondria per cell, but most people's daily use things is going to be your brain and heart. Those are the two locations where the majority of chronic diseases pop up. Think of it as like a brownout. You don't have enough energy in those systems, diseases start showing up. And so you need your body to have a finely tuned circadian rhythm so you will sleep well enough that your body can start repairing that damage. Okay, then let's go into that, the sleep and the importance of sleep. It's critical. I mean, if I wasn't a cardiologist, I probably would be a sleep specialist to understand like how important it is for cellular regeneration. The mitochondria, they do two processes. They do mitophagy, where it's basically, or autophagy, it's cell recycling. So think about like your body's going to have some damage that happens throughout the day. You know, you're eating food, you're exercising, there's damage to your body. It's like having dirty dishes. At the end of the night, when you go to sleep, you put the dishes in the dishwasher, you run the dishwasher. And in the morning, you have clean dishes. That's what autophagy is. You're cleaning up the damage that's gone on throughout the day. But there's sometimes where the plates are just completely broken. You're going to have to make new plates. That's going to take a lot of energy. So that is going to require a lot of good sleep for that process to happen. If you don't do that well enough, then it's like having your engines, like you never change the spark plugs. They're just not going to make good energy for you. So do you use a sleep tracker? I noticed you post something on your Instagram, which by the way, if you don't follow him on Instagram, you need to, which I'll connect in the show notes because he does a lot of free education on there, which is awesome. 
Yeah, I, mean, I basically think like Instagram's the matrix. I don't particularly love social media because of the blue light aspect, but the people who are interested in the stuff, I go on there, educate them, and if they're interested, unplug them from that. But I've tried many of them. I've tried the original Oura Ring. I had Gen 1, Gen 2. I've tried the Whoop Band. I'm currently playing around with some called the Cardio Mood and the Biostrap. My concerns always with these ones is you want to have the option to put them into airplane mode or turn off Bluetooth because your mitochondria, when they're repairing themselves, you don't want a lot of excess non-native EMF, basically noise, interfering with your mitochondria's repair. You know, your mitochondria are always sensing the environment, and they're sensing your tracker pulsing you multiple times a minute. It can cause inflammation issues with you. So you want to try to keep your sleep trackers always in airplane mode. But I've gotten so you know, much to the point where like my sleep is so dialed in, like I don't need to track it every night. And there's definitely reports on people who've been given trackers. I think they did this in some uh, professional uh, basketball players. They blinded into the results. And then the morning they told them like, yeah, your recovery score is horrible. You didn't sleep at all. And then they went out there and performed horribly, but they actually had a good night's sleep. And the converse was the same. They told them like, yeah, you slept awesome. And they had horrible sleep and they still performed well. So you can somewhat trick yourself into that. Like when you wake I up and you look that. at your, your recovery score <laughs> and you're like, oh, it's a horrible day. I shouldn't work out. I should do things <laughs> like, it's just a guide point. Like, is there something, you know, that kind of like check engines lights, like, hey, am I doing something out of the ordinary? Am I eating later than I normally did? You know, am I getting sick? I think it's useful in those instances, but uh, to hypervigilate on your results, I wouldn't worry about that. It's so funny you say that because my husband will be like, how'd you sleep last night? I'm like, I don't know. I got to check my, I got to go to the aura wrap. It'll let me know. I totally agree with that. But I like it for, I'm a pretty good sleeper, but my biggest intrigue right now is HRV balance. And I want to ask you about that. But the HRV is such a, sensitive measurement. Both times that I had COVID, I knew the day before that it was coming. So it's so interesting to me how the HRV balance works. And my HRV balance is what I would think is low. Now you might tell me this is kind of how like you dump the cholesterol into buckets, uh, but my HRV balance is rarely over 40. Some people might have no idea what HRV even is. So let's Explain what HRV is and what it measures, and then we can get into this a little bit more. Sure. So heart rate variability, or HRV. The nerdy thing is it's the measurement in milliseconds between consecutive heartbeats. So you cannot calculate this by feeling your pulse. You have to use some type of device that records a high-fidelity rhythm strip. So a lot of the sleep trackers or activity trackers now are able to do that. So there's forms that are in rings, there's bands, but the old school one is wearing a chest strap, which is measuring your heart rate. So everybody's used to looking at their heart rate if they exercise and would see it. But the variability is the beat to beat difference between them. So it's a balance between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system. So when you activate your vagal nerve, the heart rate will slow down. When it's not activated, the heart rate would speed up. So the best example is breathing. So when you breathe in, your heart rate will increase and your heart rate variability will go down. When you breathe out, the heart rate will go down, the heart rate variability goes up. So heart rate and heart variability are kind of like a seesaw. When one's high, the other one's lower. But there's many, many things that go into heart rate variability. First thing is it's largely genetically determined. And the other thing is that one tracker, it's apples and oranges comparing trackers. So when people are like, my heart rate variability is low, I always have to say like, what number is it? What tracker? Because I'm kind of a crazy biohacker sometimes. You know, right now I'm wearing two different bands. I got, you know, a cardio mood and a biostrap on. They give vastly different heart rate variability numbers. So you have to stick with whatever works for you and see, like you said, have your own baseline. So 
Use it for five, seven days and see what is your baseline heart variability. It may be low. Okay. But it can be a metric that when it drops from your baseline, that you may be getting sick. That's how I got interested in kind of reusing it after a couple of years was that was kind of the early warning sign that somebody's going to be coming down with COVID 24 to 48 hours later because their temperatures are going to start increasing, which then raises their heart rate, which pushes down their heart rate variability. So for athletes, you know, a lot of people use those for like, well, are they overtraining? Which is possible, but the weekend warrior is probably not overtraining often enough to say that, oh, my heart rate ability is so low, I shouldn't work out. Right. So is there such thing as a low HRV? Like, what would you say to me if I'm like, hey, my HRV is rarely over 40? It really depends on, you know, what else is going on. Like you say, like, hey, I'm sleeping well. Yeah, I got my nutrition dialed in. I'm exercising the way I want. Be like, you're just one of those low HRV type people. But the data really came from sick people who were in the hospital. You know, they studied these people who had heart attacks. And when you have a heart attack, they put you in the telemetry unit. So they got you hooked up to all the EKG wires, making sure you don't have an abnormal or deadly heart rhythm because it's very common after a heart attack that these rhythms would happen. And so they're measuring heart rate variability in these people. And they had noted the people who had low heart rate variability, they did not do as well at 30 days. They had more deaths. They had more events. People had higher heart rate variability, recovered better. High heart rate variability is more in tune with that. Your body is just ready to go between kind of the gas, the fight or flight response, or the rest and relaxation response. You can bounce very quickly between the two. The people who are more tightly, they're kind of a little bit more tightly regulated. But if, like I said, if you're sleeping well, feel well, having low heart rate variability, does it truly matter? It's really unknown in kind of the general population. Okay, perfect. Okay, so you mentioned nutrition and diet would be like four and five. We did light one, sleep two. What's three? Stress management. What's that? <laughs> yeah, everybody's got it, physical and mental, but not everybody deals with it well. So so what are some of your recommendations there, like meditation and you just kind of give tips? Yeah, deep tips breathing like exercises that. like box breaths, kind of the gadget way is, you know, using heart math, which is biofeedback. It measures heart rate variability and it gives you a color. And when it's red, you're kind of out of balance. It puts you through the different breathing exercises, turns green, you're in balance. Okay. And then- there's some called the Apollo Neuro, which vibrates at different frequencies that has been shown to improve heart rate variability. So I have, I think it's Gen 5, this aura ring that I'm wearing right now. Is it Gen 4 or Gen 5? But when you go to the meditation app portion of it, it measures your heart rate and your variability and your body temperature if you stay still. So I'm assuming kind of correlating to what you just said, it's trying to measure your stress level there. Correct. Okay. So then let's talk about the nutrition and there's the keto, which is a little bit controversial, right? The doctors will be like, oh, don't do keto because it's going to raise your cholesterol levels. Do you have a stance on that? For sure. And I have lots of patients that are on keto successfully. And I've had people who you know, have done keto and it was really not the right thing for them. But I always start with what is that person's goals? And then have they tried in the past that's worked for them? But it really comes back down to the mitochondria. You know, The mitochondria are the engines that break down your foodstuffs and make energy out of them. Your mitochondria are not eating carbohydrates. Your mitochondria are not eating fats. The mitochondria are using the electrons from the fats and carbohydrates to make ATP, water, heat. So thinking about food as energy is more interesting. You know, like Food is stored up sunlight if it was done right. Anything that's made the mother nature, you're designed to eat. So if the sun grew a plant, you're supposed to potentially eat it and absorb that light energy from it. Or you're eating the animal that ate the plant and absorbing the energy from the animal. So start with that as the idea is that you want to eat for your mitochondria. Now, is keto always good? You know, for people who have seizure disorders, possibly, but everybody else, 
you would have never chosen to be keto 365 days a year. You would have been forced into it. So at high enough latitudes, nothing grows in your environment in the wintertime. So you only ate animal-based products at that year. So you were keto-based that year. And then when the vegetables and fruits are coming back, you would start eating those. So most people in St. Louis should have a very seasonal type diet. Now, if you live at the equator, you have vegetables and fruits every day of the year. You can eat whatever. If you live way 60 degrees north, well, maybe you're going to be more keto, you know, the Inuits and the such, you know, the whale blubber and stuff like that. So it really depends on where you're physically located in the world, which determines what is your, quote, optimal nutrition plan. Okay, perfect. And then you hear a lot about like low sodium diets to help lower your blood pressure. Is there any truth to that? There is some, you know, there's people that are more salt sensitive than others, but it's basically the salt damages the endothelial glycocalyx that starts kicking off the cascade of low nitric oxide, raises blood pressure, damages kidneys. So some people are more sensitive than others. Okay. And do you do any genetic testing to know if your patients are predisposed to some of these heart conditions or maybe even can make recommendations on some of these diets? For sure. And, you know, back to kind of the keto question is I will do a check an APOE genotype for an APOE4. Keto diet might not work that well for you. The threes tends to work, the twos tends to work. But there's another lab company that can assess how you're absorbing those different fats. So if you're eating 80% of your calories from fats, well, you want to look at a test called the cholesterol balance test and we'll see, well, is your intestines bringing back a huge volume of that fat? And when you bring back that fat through the portal circulation to the liver, your liver has to make another lipoprotein to get that fat into it. And so it's not necessarily a cholesterol side issue. It's you're just making tons of triglycerides, which can be a problem in certain instances because the particles can then drop off the cholesterol into the artery and kick off that cascade again. So those are the people that they would say like, hey, keto is the only thing that's going to work for me. And they're hyper-absorbing sterols. That's not the time to bust out the statin. That's the time to consider using azetamide or used to be known as zetia. Block some of those gates in the intestines so not so much of that stuff is being reabsorbed. And then you can see their lipoproteins be more optimized. So you hear about the omega-3s being heart healthy, eat fish. Can you expand upon that? And is supplementation the same as eating it? So the second part is no, it's not the same thing. So omega-3s, the main ones that you're looking at are DHA and EPA. They're both important, but DHA is a little bit more important for brain health, retinal health, nerve health. EPA is a little bit more important for arterial health. And the way it happened in evolution is when sunlight would hit the seawater, the algae was making the omega-3s inside them. It was in a certain position called the SN1 and SN3 position when it's in algae. When the fish would eat the algae, it would convert the omega-3 on that triglyceride backbone into the SN2 position. So it's like in the proper key slot. Then the humans would eat it and that omega-3 would get into the cells. When you supplement, you have not as much fidelity that you know that that omega-3 is in the SN2 position and is actually getting into the cells where you want it to go. Now, your blood levels will go up, and maybe that's good enough for some people and keeps your inflammation down. But ideally, you're always getting it through Mother Nature's ways. What are your top few fish that you recommend people eat? Oysters, the number one, you know, pound for pound. But from a seafood standpoint, the fattier the fish, the more omega-3 is going to be present. So the acronym is kind of like SMASH. So it's, you know, the salmon, the mackerel, the anchovies, sardines, herring. Those are kind of the big ones. Tuna on occasion is good too. I got to stick to the oyster, salmon, and tuna because I am not eating sardines. No, no, and no. <laughs> okay. The fitness portion of this, what type of exercise do you recommend or do you take an approach where it's not a one size fits all here? 
probably not a one size fits all. And, you know, to start off, you know, like I'm not an exercise physiologist, but thinking about more like things for longevity, you know, there's different training if, you know, if you're a lead athlete and you want to be doing, you know, peak level things, but the average person, they need to focus on the combination of many things. Most people kind of underdose their resistance or strength training. I want people to try to do that at least three days a week, work with a trainer if you don't know what exercises to do or use certain machines to kind of lessen the risk of injury. And then more of the cardio side of things until people are more cardiovascular conditioned, want them to be doing more zone two type training where it's kind of low and slow cardio, because that's the speed where you're actually helping optimize mitochondrial function at burning fat for energy. And then once people get a little bit more engine tune-ups, then you can teach them to do more of the interval type training. But then there's the things that like almost everybody ignores or doesn't do as much about as flexibility and balance training, which, you know, if you can be really strong, but if you fall down and still get injured, that's a problem. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the importance of estrogen and testosterone as it relates to cardiovascular health. So for both men and women, you need both of those hormones. And think about hormones as just a marker of like, are you doing everything right in your environment? So if your body's under significant stress, you're not sleeping well, you're not eating well, your body's like, this is not a good time to reproduce. We need to store all the energy for our heart and brain and keep that alive. And so then people have rock bottom hormone levels and just giving them back hormones might make them feel better initially, but you really want to first like figure out why are the levels low in the first place and can you correct it? Now, there's some times where you just absolutely cannot, but if the person's not sleeping well, start there. You know, if they're not getting enough healthy fats in their diet, start there. But if you replace somebody with bioidentical hormones and keep them in physiologic ranges, there's really no significant increased cardiovascular risk. It's when the people are using anabolic steroids, they're using growth hormone on top of it. Like that's when people are going to get themselves into trouble. Yeah. These massive bodybuilders, they lose all concept that the heart is a muscle as well. And that if your neck is the same size as your shoulders, that your heart's expanding as well. <laughs> but I think clarifying that for people, because we do still hear from time to time, a patient come in and say like, hey, my primary care doesn't want me on testosterone. Him or her says it's going to cause a heart attack or stroke. And it's kind of hard for me to understand why that's still a mindset with testosterone when it's in therapeutic range. I think it's because it still has a black box warning on it. And the studies that they'd used to put the black box warning on it were kind of debunked. You know, they weren't really high quality studies, but nobody's ever gone back to uh, basically get the black box warning and take off. And so if you only hear the headline that testosterone causes problems and they never, you know, have the uh, follow up saying, hey, no, everything's good. People just remember the original headline. And I read something the other day because I messaged you about AFib. And when I was reading about it, I read an article about how low levels of testosterone can actually like exacerbate AFib. Can you tell me about that? Explain that a little bit. I don't know what the exact mechanism actually would be. I would imagine it had to be through some type of inflammatory oxidative stress pathway. But yeah, you know, low testosterone again it would just be a marker that yeah. You know. Oh, sorry. I need to probably clarify that statement. I mean, like that guys with low testosterone are more at risk for AFib. Yeah. So if you, you know, let's just say naturally have low levels of testosterone, you're at increased risk of cardiovascular disease. It has an effect on your lipoproteins. You know, if you have really low testosterone, you're going to have likely dyslipidemia, you're going to have very low HDL particles, probably high LDL particles or ApoB particles. So it mostly probably affects through the, the lipoprotein pathways, probably also some of the inflammatory pathways. Okay. And what about the clinics that are still blocking estrogen? Can you expand upon the importance of estrogen with cardiovascular health? 
estrogen is, you know, needed in the system. Estrogen is something that nitric oxide utilizes. So the more estrogen you have, the more nitric oxide is likely to be working effectively for you. So a lot of the side effects that people have, they want to say it's from their estrogen. It's, you know, it may be from kind of these aromatase inhibitors in some individuals. So you just have to work with a provider who's, you know, aware of the, the risk benefits of using those things. Okay, let's move on to red light therapy. We were both at A4M a couple months ago, a couple weeks ago. I've, I've lost track of time. And I purchased a red light bed out there and I know you were looking at some and you're kind of an expert in red light. So let's talk about the benefits of it. Sure. So photobiomodulation or PBM for short. So using light therapy to change your biology. So been around since the 1960s. I was accidentally discovered. There was a gentleman who was studying lasers in the animal model to see did it induce cancers and and actually had shown that this red ruby laser was regrowing fur on these rats and they didn't understand why well eventually you know they did enough research and figured out that it was the wavelengths that were stimulating mitochondrial function so the nasa was kind of the big push in the states and then the Russians and the Germans were big on their side. But because of the Cold War, a lot of that information was kind of buried from this side until the late 90s. But now it's just kind of having a heyday where the general consumer is starting to see these red light panels being marketed. And the benefit or multitude head to toe, you know, helps with hair growth, helps with collagen and wrinkles, can help with oral health, can help with thyroid health, can help with activating stem cells, can help with gut health can help with musculoskeletal health. The main benefits are in the musculoskeletal world. There's thousands of articles on the benefit of red light therapy for musculoskeletal repair. So the way it actually works is that the wavelengths of light, when they hit your skin, the acronym is RATS. It can reflect off your skin so you can see the red light bouncing off. It can be absorbed, kind of like Pac-Man gobbles up the photons of light. It can be transmitted. That'd be kind of like an x-ray where you know the x-rays go straight through you, or it scatters. It kind of plays pinball, bounces around, and eventually gets into the cells that need it. So red light penetrates into the mitochondria and it makes the mitochondria more energy efficient. Energy flows faster and it also helps basically charge up the water in the cells where you store the energy in the water in the network. So red light therapy, very low risk, a lot of benefit, but you know, there's a lot of things where you have to know the dosing. And that is literally the biggest challenge that I have when I'm on social media or even sitting face to face with another practitioner or a patient is like, how long do I use this device for it? And I always have to say, what are you treating? What is your device? There's different settings on the device you have to look at. First is what are the colors? What are the wavelengths? Is it just red? Is it infrared? Is it both? Then there's something called the irradiance or the power density. Think about it as like, that's the temperature. Like, is it a low power device? And you're gonna have to use it for a long time. They'd be like cooking a turkey with like a candle or is it like a blowtorch? You know, okay, then you only need a few minutes of it. And then it's the duration. So it's the irradiance times the time, that's your dose. Okay, do you do it once a day, three times a week? Every organ has a little bit of a different window. But good thing is that unless you do something really stupid, it's really hard to hurt yourself with it. You just may not get the full benefit unless you get the kind of the right optimal dose. What type of red light are you using? I have a lot of them. So, <laughs> Are you yeah. using a bed, a panel, all of the above? I don't yet have a bed. I'm researching one that I want. But right now I have an eight foot by four foot panel in my office. It's 5,000 watts. feels like the sun when you stand in front of this thing. I have different 
portable devices that I you know show the patients or I have at home, travel with them. And then, you know, there's these flexible patches. These are great if you have a, you know, bruise or a hematoma or something you want to treat. Oh, I've never you know, seen hurt. that. Let me yeah. put that more in front of the camera. Yeah. Okay. Sticks to whatever hurts. You put a little battery pack on it and it lights up. It does 30-minute sessions. What type of light is in that? Is it infrared and? It's red and blue, actually. The blue will actually, when it's on the skin, will help pulse nitric oxide from the arteries. So okay. I was interested for the ability for it to help with blood pressure, possibly erectile performance issues for some people and was interested in that it was portable. So I'm playing around with this a little bit, but yeah, I have multiple different things. I have a red light helmet that can help with people's hair growth. I have an infrared one that can help with brain health. So it really depends on the use case. So I just interviewed Dr. Alan Bauman and he does the laser hat. So he thinks that for the hair, it needs to be laser versus LED. Are you using a laser hat as well or is yours a LED cap for hair? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not into the business of like hair regrowth. I just have a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. So. Okay. And then, so the panel, how many times a week are you personally doing your panel? The funny thing is I actually don't use my big panel in my office all that much because I also have some more moderate sized ones at home. So I mostly use the, the home ones. Right now, fortunately, nothing hurts. I haven't injured myself recently, so I don't have to use them. But, you know, I really like my kind of portable ones. You know, I have a, a one from a company called Soul Basin. They're out of Australia. Yeah, about that size. You know. So you're just putting that on the spot that's injured. You're just holding that up to the site. Site that's injured or, you know, when I tell people like, you know, if you're not injured, then you just want to kind of shine it on your chest. You activate the stem cells in your sternum and then the stem cells go out to where they need to work. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. Just for the biohacker looking to optimize no injury, you're saying put the red light on the chest. Correct. Okay. How did you get into red light therapy? fell down the rabbit hole in 2017 when I was taking a trip over to Asia and I knew the jet lag would be really bad. And so I was doing some research and they said, you know, buy these uh, funky glasses and I bought them, wore them on the plane and jet lag was maybe about third as, as bad as I expected. And then when I got home, I said, I got to read about this light stuff and then stumbled upon a couple of different people. And then they start talking about, it used to be called low level laser therapy. Now it's called photobiomodulation. So I started reading about that and educating myself. And now I'm you know, very passionate about teaching my patients about it. So what about the blocking the blue light? Because and not all blue light's the same. Like we just kind of talked about blue light for hair, and I know it's used for acne and stuff like that. But I'm talking about blue light coming from devices. Right, because when it's coming from your devices, it's, you know, the color temperature is 5,500 Kelvin. That color temperature of blue is the exact same as solar noon. So if you're looking at your devices at 9 o'clock at night, you just told your brain it's still noontime and you're going to keep cortisol high and you're going to suppress melatonin. And you need melatonin to be rising when it's dark to not only initiate sleep, but keep you asleep. And it's more important than just that. The melatonin is one of the most powerful antioxidants that you have in your body. It's anti-cancerous, but it's also essentially the fuel that has the effect of causing the mitochondria to repair themselves. So without enough melatonin, you don't repair your engines. Okay. So what are you using for that? I know you have the glasses, obviously, but are you using as well the ones that cover the computer and cover your phones? Like th those are the ones that I have. And then my son does have blue glasses as well. So a couple of things, you know, I always ask people like, well, I have the twilight feature set up on my phone. Is that enough? Like it's, it's a step in the right direction, but still not a quote enough unless you're trying to optimize your sleep. You need to go further. You need a physical blocker to block out up to about 455 nanometers of blue light. So there are companies that make the old school screen protectors that you can put over your you know, devices. I have those in my office on some of my devices that I use for the patients. You know, for the computers, you can use Iris or there's a, one I like 
better is the iris, but the old one was actually called F-Lux. So that can pull out a lot of the blue from your devices to kind of help your brain start calming down at night. But I still think people should consider wearing the glasses at least the hour or two before they go to bed. What brand of glasses are you wearing right now? These are the EMR Tech Wolverines. They're not really known as a blue light blocking company. They're mostly known for their panels. They're the people that make my big eight foot tall panel, but they have these cool kind of gold rimmed uh, cop glasses. So I, uh, I like wearing these ones sometimes. How careful do you need to be about your eyes and that red light? Like, do you just not want to look at it directly or are you wearing like the sun tanning goggles whenever you use those anywhere on your body? It's a great question. And it really depends on the irradiance or the power density of the device. If it's an LED, probably not much of an issue. But if it's a laser, you probably absolutely have to wear eye protection. But there are some recent studies that, you know, it can help with macular degeneration. But is that like a time of like three minutes exposure? So some of these panels, you know, you're doing 10, 15, 20 minutes, you don't want to be staring directly into the light for that entire time. It's more the infrared wavelengths that can cause a problem. So I mostly don't just stare directly into the devices. I don't usually wear the the goggles type things at home. But in front of my eight-foot panel, I have like, you know, solar eclipse glasses for people so they can face it and it's not too bright for them. Yeah, I recently had an eye doctor tell me that they're looking at the red light for plepharitis. And I was kind of like, well, I, I was just curious how that works if you're covering your eyes. It's the dose, you know, just lower dose probably. Okay. So how do people get in touch with you? Can you give some information so people can find you? And I'll also attach in the show notes, but just tell them a little bit about your practice. Sure. Well, just thank you for the opportunity to speak to your audience. It's always great to talk to people about preventing heart attacks because that's my passion. My office is located in St. Louis. I have a practice called Apollo Cardiology. Sometimes you get asked, why is it Apollo? Well, one, it's alphabetical. You know, the old school phone book, you know, would be at the top of the list. But Apollo was a god of the sun. Therefore, I talk about circadian biology all the time. But my practice deals with patients of all ages. You know, I think my youngest patient is probably about 16. My oldest, I think, is about 84. My 96-year-old guy, I think he moved from the area, but he didn't die. He's still alive. So I work with patients you know, to test endothelial health right here in the office. And then I do work with some patients remotely via telemedicine. On social media, mostly active on Instagram. My handle is Dr. Twyman, D-R-T-W-Y-M-A-N. My stories were most of the things I kind of go through, like what I do in a normal day. And then every Monday night, 6 p.m. Central Time, I go live and do a different cardiovascular topic, different biohacking topic. The first of the month, I always do an Ask Me Anything. So people come in and ping me with similar questions about heart rate variability or red light, how to use this stuff, and just kind of help educate people with this information. Okay, awesome. Well, I'm going to be in to see you because I want to know. I'm so intrigued by this. So I appreciate your time and thank you so much for being on the show. And as always, I'm going to attach all this information in the show notes. And as a reminder that I started the show with at the beginning, please rate and follow the show. 